0: Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball.
1: This week, we're absolutely delighted to have Dr. Antonio Quesido Marolanda join us in the podcast. Dr. Quesido is a colorectal surgeon. And another contender for the title of the most interesting man in the world, we talked to him about his fascinating life journey, as well as had a masterclass with him on the most common dinnertime conversation topic, transanal surgery. Stay tuned till the end of the video where Dr. Quesito shows us some clips of his own operations and shares his tips and tricks. If you like the podcast, give us a review on iTunes, and subscribe to us on our YouTube channel at Cold Steel Surgery. Thank you so much for joining us on the Cold Steel Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show uh, as a true innovator and, and someone who's just had a, an absolutely fascinating life journey. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and uh, where you did your training. Okay. Well, first, uh, thank you for having me and for inviting me to, to this.
2: Uh, I'm originally from Colombia and I uh, did my med school. I'm from a very small town here in Colombia. I... I went to Bogota, did my high school there. Then I went to do my med school in Colombia. You go straight from high school to university. So I finished medicine at age 23. Uh, Subsequently, I did a compulsory social service, which is for one year. Then went to do residency for four years. I was able to work for about 18, 20 months here. Uh, at that point, uh, my wife and I had decided to immigrate to Canada. I wasn't really sure uh, if that was feasible or not. Uh, fortunately, things uh, worked out well. And uh, in 2004, I went to to Canada. I landed in Montreal and uh, started doing um, all the, the the exams, the MCC, and all that. And uh, after uh, two and a half years, uh, I started residency again in 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 Ottawa. Uh, Instead of doing the five years that typically residences uh, as an img and 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 having had previous training, I started as a second year resident, uh, but I at the end was promoted. so I did three years before writing my my Royal college and 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 have my certification. Uh, after that, I, I I went to London entirely to do uh, a clinical fellowship, and that was only one year in London.
0: That's a fascinating voyage. Now you ended up in Sudbury next, and I'm I'm curious. You, you know, we're going to talk a, a little bit about a, a real masterclass here that that uh, we're so thrilled to have you walk us through, but. Before we do that, you know, one of the things you're going to talk about, obviously, is the complexity and the the volume and the density of of the content and the and the technical requirement and the surgery that you were doing. How, how did you start that in Sudbury as a smaller center? How was your support? How did your colleagues look at that? What were some of the challenges? Can you walk us through that, that yeah. genesis and that experience? Yeah.
2: Yeah, so it, it, this is a, you know, a bunch of different steps uh, uh, that, that happen. So I'll go back a little bit. As an IMG, uh, you have to do a return of service. That's five years. The expectation of the government is you're going to remain in a place forever because statistically after five years in a place, you don't, you don't leave. Uh, And usually those are underserved areas in which there are some limitations in terms of resources, in terms of the things that uh, you can do. Um, I started looking at where to go. Uh, Every other place was significantly small, but Sudbury was large enough, was a regional hospital, a tertiary hospital that have a large area of influence, but was pretty much um, just general surgery cure general surgery. So I started looking at that and I remember at that time, people in London saying, or other people saying to me, why are you going to go to Sudbury? There is nothing. And the interesting thing is every person that I asked, have you ever been to Sudbury? None of them had been to Sudbury. So they had a preconceived idea about this place. I went there, the hospital was great. It was pretty large. Uh, Catchment area was over 600,000 patients. And there was no colorectal service at all nothing when i did my uh residency in ottawa i had significant challenges because i came to this country and i didn't know how to speak any english at all so it, it was kind of like learning on the street when i did the exams uh i didn't know how to read any english i didn't know absolutely anything so i had to pretty much use a textbook and a dictionary so i was reading about four pages a day, and I'm talking about 12 hours a day, doing this with the dictionary and the textbook, writing like this, and it was just taking, you know, a lot of time when I did my first exam and it worked. So I was ecstatic that, you know, things worked out that well. So I kind of like applied the same strategy for the second exam and it worked. When I did the third one, the LMCC part two, that that was oral, um, first attempt I failed but I knew exactly what happened and I understood. So I quickly registered for the second time and it went well. Then I did the exam for the IMG uh, that was called at that point IMG Ontario. And uh, IMG Ontario had about 500 applicants for five spots. At the end, they granted three, one in Ottawa, two in Toronto. So that was incredibly challenging uh, to accomplish so I was not um, I, 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 I was not afraid of difficulties. I was very familiar with, with with adversity, so going to Sudbury and finding a place in which uh, the chief of surgery at that point, John Snyder, he was very generous to say you, ca- you can develop this in any way we want, and the one thing that I said very clearly is i don 't want to do um hernias i don't want to do breasts i don't want like listen if i'm here i'm just gonna do colorectal surgery he said yeah definitely do it most surgeons opposed to that vision and most senior surgeons that were there they were like you we know we've been doing this thing forever so you coming here you have an accent you're not canadian you why are you, and you're younger than us why are you going to tell us what to do so it was a constant i wouldn't say fight but it was always resistance, resistance, and people were like, like opposing you. In, 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 in separate, there was never a colorectal uh, service. So patients, if they wanted or they needed something really specialized, they had to go to, to Toronto or Ottawa, depending on where they wanted to go. Um, by... Uh, pretty much just going to meet these uh, surgeons, meet uh, people to travel to the communities to start talking and start looking for new opportunities, Uh, bringing uh, MIS, laparoscopic things, saying, you know what, like this decrease our rate of permanent colostomy that was close to 40, 50%, being able to bring it down to under 10%. uh, And people started noticing that, and even the surgeons, and slowly they started to, Turn around and they say, "Okay, well, uh, maybe we should, you know, give the rectal cancer patients uh, to you." And I started having that conversations uh, with them. There was significant, significant challenge and resistance from many different sectors. But when people start seeing kind of like good results, uh, and the support was definitely having a chief of surgery that was very open minded to allow these things to, to happen.
1: I mean, it, it's it's worth saying that you you were doing, you know, not just laparoscopic colorectal surgery, but you were really doing TATME, which I think it, it's very uh, defensible to say it's one of the most complex operations that uh, anyone can do in, in colorectal surgery, just uh, the approach, the anatomy. Um, how did you work that as, as a person, you know, without, and, you know, I don't... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you had another person with you in Sudbury who was doing TATME. So you really didn't have um, support per se or someone else that you could say, hey, what do you think is going on here? Uh, Because they wouldn't really know. So how did you approach that um, sort of being a single surgeon, approaching a complex case like that? How did you institute something like that? And how did you uh, approach those kind of cases?
2: So um, in... 2012, I, I got, I got surgery in 2011, and um, early, I wanted to do tents. I was familiar with temps, but the cost of the machine was $100,000 capital. So as much as the hospital was very supportive and Joel and the Snyder was very supportive, I knew they were not going to, to um, um, buy this machine for me. So I started doing some research, and I found that there was a platform called Tames. But there was no time in Canada. Uh, So I located the vendor uh, uh, through Apply Medical. uh, And and it was a company, different company here in Canada. So I approached and this person said, you know what? We have this platform, but nobody that we have approached wants to use it. Like we went to X number of different colorectal surgeons, but people don't want to use it. You know what? I, I wanna I wanna use it. I said, I wanna do it. Uh, sure. Yeah. Okay. So they organized for me to go to Seattle. I met Liz Macklemore and I did a course with her. Uh, at that point, I remember um, they have articulated, angulated instruments and for the course. And I said, no, I don't want to use angulated instruments because uh, where I am at, they will not have those instruments. So I want to do it with straight instruments. So in 2012, I came back to Severy and our first patient is there. I remember doing that case. It took about three hours to do. I used a harmonic. The only time that I had used a harmonic for a time is, but I started doing it. And kind of like introduced for the first time ever in Canada. So I started doing it, accumulated significant experience. And the obvious next step was to move into TATMA. So I went to um, Barcelona with Antonio Lacy and I did their course and there were very at that point there was a big hype on TTME probably the beginning of that high with TTME so I went for the course and I was very excited to doing it I was very familiar already with the platform but this was probably May June when I went to Barcelona so come back came back waiting for the correct case to do it didn't dare to do any cases And then I remember this person had a T2 tumor, uh, straight for surgery, no rats, no anything. So they measured this tumor at about 14 centimeters. I repeated the scope and, yeah, this is an upper tumor, uh, let's do it. So I did this laparoscopically. Everything went really good. The patient stayed a couple of days at the hospital. And few days after, not even a week, I was walking by the hall, and the pathologist told me, hey, uh, Antonio, by the way, uh, that case, just wanted to let you know, had complete response. There is nothing uh, in the specimen. And I kept walking, thank you, no, that's great. And immediately I realized, well, this patient never had hemorrhagic. The tumor is still there. So, you know, you get into like a panic mode at that point, what do I do? I called the patient, I said, listen, I need you to come back. Uh, it was an upper rectal cancer, 14 centimeters. So I was entirely convinced that I had resected it. Patient came back on a Friday. I scoped in and indeed the tumor was still there. So why do I do? And uh, I admitted the patient and I said, we're gonna do a THTMA tomorrow, that was a Saturday. Patient came in, we set up the platform, all the upper the sections had been already done because I did that on Monday. I put my platform, put my suture, boom, boom, boom. Disconnected this first THME that I did. Reconnected, the guy did great. He was very understanding of the situation. You know, It was something that I was forced to do this first THME. And at that point I became just kind of like confident. Okay, now we can start doing it. That was the first case. It took about a month to do, and I was starting to pick up lots of volume. Uh, you know, at, at some point, I was doing probably about 80 rectal cancers a year. Uh, that I was almost dedicated to rectal cancer surgery. So I started developing this, and what I did is I had a, a, a nurse that was very motivated, so I involved her into this she went with me to the conference. I took her always to like, you know, the training places, to everything. And she was there, I would say in 95% of the cases. She was at the top and then she was at the bottom with me. Like she was always doing the camera with me. Uh, And there was a a, a retired surgeon, Raymond Gay, uh, who was almost uh, always my assistant. So the three of us were almost always uh, in the room. Uh, and we created a system in which, you know, at the end, I think we did over 250 TME cases uh, in Sudbury with this with this team.
0: That's an amazing story, and you know, of course, that that volume is uh, is incredible just to consider, given the complexity and the underlying epidemiology of that disease. I'm curious, you, you're in Sudbury, you know this this is going sounds like very well you've created this program, and then you were were recruited to Queens and end up there, and then subsequently to Orlando. So I guess, first of all, congratulations. How is your experience? Yeah, it's wonderful. How has your experience in the US been so far for you? What's your vision for that program and and where do you wanna go with it?
2: Well, definitely, it's different. It's different than 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 in Canada, you know. And I can tell you, the Canadian healthcare system, despite of what many people say and criticize, is is wonderful. It's wonderful. The fact that you know anyone can have access to this. In in the US, uh, there is always the challenge of the insurance company and what's going. Uh, I, I feel very fortunate about what 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 the organization I am at uh, uh, is offering me, and it's pretty much to build a program from. I wouldn't say from scratch, but uh, Orlando Hill didn't really have its own colorectal service. Mm. The step of being in Kingston to me was fantastic. It was a great experience. You know, the colleagues that I had there, Sunil Patel and Hugh McDonald, And then I think I was very lucky because I came with this TTM experience, but then I landed in Kingston where, you know, Amir, uh, the volume of robotic surgery is higher than anywhere else in the country. So, I was able to then accumulate TTME, robotic surgery, laparoscopic surgery, which all together will be a pretty unique set of skills. Uh, uh, uh. So, the plan now is to bring that uh, kind like, of like expertise and also bring the expertise of having developed the, the colorectal service in Sudbury from scratch and, and take this one forward. Uh, what is my goal? Well, I'll tell you. Um, I never planned that I would be here. I didn't ever, like, this is not even the wildest of my dreams. I would have thought that I was going to be recruited to Orlando. I'll say Not even in the wildest of my dream, I thought I was going to go to Queens uh, at any point. Uh, you know, at some point, I wanted to, to to do more than what I was doing in Sudbury. But Sudbury was great for me. I'm very grateful to everything that happened there. The opportunity, because I was given a blank opportunity to say, to, you know, do whatever you want. So now my ambition with this program is, um, if, if I told you I want to get less than make this uh, top world class program, I will be like, like that's what I'm looking to do, uh, and I want to you know bring things from a different perspective. Uh, there is a lot of things that are done, for instance, in, in the in the US that are based on seniority. Mm-hmm. I I I don't think that's the right way to do it. I think this is should be based on on uh, people that are capable and people that are willing to do things, uh, not because of seniority. So the same way that you know I found opportunities for me without having that seniority or without having that Canadian experience, and they were granted to me somehow. I, I want to be able to create something because I, I think that's a very successful method to 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 be to find talent, to find you know great people, and then definitely want us run by people that I think are better than me. So they can, you know, help me elevate this, this thing.
1: We wanna dive a little bit deep with, with you and, and do a little masterclass here on transanal surgery for, for obvious reasons. We're gonna confine our discussion, if that's okay with you, Dr. Kucido, to talking about just tra- uh, TAMIS or TEM, so uh, excision of rectal polyps or, rectal, or early rectal cancers. From a transanal approach. Um, And just again, to to define some of these terms, so TAMIS is transanal minimally invasive surgery. And as Dr. Casito said, that's a flexible platform that you can put in the anus um, and then put some trocars through and use traditional laparoscopic instruments to actually do the operation. Whereas a TEM is a transanal endoscopic microsurgery. That's a more traditional platform where they use a rigid platform that we, we stick in the anus uh and then use the angled instruments that you were talking about before to do this procedure i think most places now uh, in in the world probably are actually have moved towards using a tamis platform because as you said it's much cheaper and more flexible than uh, than a tem platform but i think many places across canada still uh at least where i've trained they're still using tem because that was what people kind of started off with. Um, so let's say, uh, Dr. Quisito, you get a patient um, who, who is sent to you with a, a large rectal polyp uh, or a rectal lesion. What are the things that you look at when you're assessing that lesion that make you think about uh, whether this would be amenable or, or even appropriate to consider a transanal excision? Sure.
2: Um... Well, definitely, it will be that I believe, based on evidence, that this is an early, uh, an early lesion, mm, that is uh, uh, not a, uh, an ulcerated, uh, clearly fungating uh, cancer that will be within the reach of the platform. Uh, that doesn't appear to be fixed to the, the planes. And if you know you think it's a polyp or it's an early lesion, then obviously you have to do the staging. Sometimes, you know, we will do the MRI. I think all the times we'll do the MRI if we think it's a malignancy. If it has the appearance of being a poly, probably the MRI will not be necessary. But I always um, do endorectal ultrasound. And I learned how to do endorectal ultrasound myself. Because it's very subjective, the endorectal ultrasound. Uh, 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 and one of the challenges with MRI, you probably know that, uh, already is defining between T1 and T2. The MRI has difficulties doing that. So the time is, uh, sorry, the endorectal person gives you that opportunity. Uh, then when I assess the patient, I always want to know what is the location inside the rectum. You know, if it is posterior, if it is lateral, if it is anterior. And the reason what I want to do this is, one, I want to know the high, and second, I want to know what are the chances of me getting into the peritoneal cavity when I do engage um, with the TAMS platform that you train on in, there in Vancouver. And we actually did a study in which we pretty much compared the two with Canadian data, the two, and definitely there is no major differences uh, using either or, it all depends on what the resources and the ability of your hospital to have. But anyways, I wanna know these types of things. One, it is clear to me where it is located that it has these features uh i just decide you know i, I think is amenable to 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 tablet in some centers you know they could have uh, uh, uh endoscopies that is skillful and would say you know let's do an emr let's do an esc um endoscopic mucosal dissection uh, endoscopic mucosal uh, mucosa resection but in my hands uh, lesions like this um, will go for times now if you look at the textbook they will say the definition is three centimeters less than 30 percent of the circumference uh, that are below the peritoneal reflection as you go and I tell you you can bend those rules, and you know depending on how much expertise you accumulate you could do more complex cases which is the natural trend for any operation, so uh, I've done things that are full circumference, uh, that are definitely above the peritoneal reflection that you get into the peritoneal cavity. So it all depends on what the, the the indications you get to develop in your center, on what access you have. In Kingston, for instance, you have Rob Bashara, who is an incredibly skilled endoscopist, like a magician. And with him, we had established some sort of a meeting or informal tumor board for that. And we will get together and say, what do you think? And decide, let's do it for time, is where this patient should go to you and do and do, uh,
1: ESD. I think that's a really important point. Uh, you know, I think it is worth reiterating what you said, uh, that if you're gonna, if you are at all concerned that this is a rectal cancer, or even an early rectal cancer, Um, it's important that that whole lesion comes out in one piece um, and that it's full thickness, because that might actually be like their definitive surgery, um, right? And that might actually save them a a radical resection. But, um, you know, if it's piecemeal or you're not sure about the margins, that's where, um, you know, the real problems can be. So I think that, that, like you talk about, having that really good relationship with your GI colleagues can be so helpful and and having had these kinds of discussions beforehand, so that you know there's an agreement or understanding that you know if there's a big rectal lesion that would be perhaps better uh, resected surgically through a transanal approach, that they uh, they kind of know about that and and will you know not inadvertently uh, kind of hoop the patient into ultimately needing a radical resection. Um,
2: if if I can add one thing yes. to that, I think that's a very very important point. Uh, one is, I always tell patients, Tami's or the local resection, this is the ultimate biopsy. So, you know, we're gonna move these and this could be your definitive resection or this could indicate us that we are going to need to do more. Uh, so they need to understand that. And when we say full thickness, it's full thickness of the muscularis propria, but not full thickness of the mesorectal fat. And the reason is, if this person needs more surgery, you don't want to violate violate that uh, uh, plane Uh, at all. I think that should be uh, really
1: understood for uh, people that do this. Talk to me a little bit about the height again, you know, because I think that's a really difficult thing for people to figure out. Right. Um, And, you know, talking specifically about the TAMIS, you know, the the gel phone kind of platform, how high can you get uh, with that and are there any kind of kind of tips and tricks if it's a sort of a higher rectal cancer? Is it do you use a sort of a measurement like, oh, above twelve centimeters I won't do this? Or is it more of a subjective thing as to, you know, how straight is the rectum? Where is it with respect to the rectal folds, the body habitus? How do you make that decision?
2: Well, to to me, it's a very, very subjective thing that I always want to scope these patients myself and I want to know where they are. Like, I want to know exactly, you know, their anterior, posterior. I don't ever, ever do a TAMIS without me scoping the patient before. If you have a TAMIS platform that is about 15 centimeters length and you can, you know, get all the way there, it doesn't really matter. But the TAMIS platform is four centimeters in diameter 4.5 centimeters in length. So the reach that you can get is very limited. The maximum that I've gotten to uh, do something was 20 centimeters. But it was the right patient in which the rectum was kind of like a straight and he was not really a candidate for anything else uh, because of his other uh, comorbidities. No, but I would say, you know, pretty much um, mm-hmm. 12 centimeters will be the ideal because there is always gonna be the, the the valves and the curves and things like that, that that will limit it and i remember what i wanted to say in my opinion conventional trans surgery for localization should be of historical value and there are people that are to argue different but there is a lot less fragmentation, there is better exposure, that you're serving that patient better. When you're doing this conventional transanal surgery, you are fighting with the light in a hole and you are struggling. And no matter how good you are, you are operating in a tiny hole in which you can only you are the only person who can really see and say, oh yeah, it was a good reception. It will gonna come fragmented and with more likelihood of uh, positive margins. Now one thing that is important is to know. Uh, going to your original question, if it is interior and you think that you are going to violate the the, the into the peritoneal cavity, I always place these patients front. If not, I. Living in lithotomy. It doesn't really matter what it is, at least with the time is platform. I initially was always putting my lesion at six o'clock. So I will put the patient in lateral, the cubital, uh, prone, supine, depending on that. Then as I gain experience, I realize you don't really need to change. You could do it in either position. But if the lesion isn't here and I think that I'm going to violate that, um, I get the patient prone. And the reason for that is when I'm going to close that defect, I don't have these mobile
1: commenting to view. Yeah, I think that's so critical because uh, you you only have to see it once, where that you're in the peritoneal cavity and everything's flopping on into your face to to regret that at a hurry. Yeah. Um, so so let's let's move a little bit into the sort of some of the more technical details. We, we've sort of already touched on this a little bit, um, but you know you you let's say you have the the person that you think uh either this is a early rectal cancer or this is just an advanced polyp uh and you know you've done your endorectal ultrasound and you don't think that this is a t2 cancer y- you know and you're bringing this patient to the operating room you've, do you do a bowel prep is that something that you do just an enema no for all is all local excisions,
2: uh, both ptme or tummies i will do a full prep um I was burned before it was, you know, you were doing the thomas and it was my and then all of a sudden you get a gosh of stool uh, and then, you know, it messes up everything with the thomas. It's very challenging because if it comes into the, the insufflation and suction device, it damages it. So I always give him a full bowel breath, always.
1: And, and you talked a little bit about positioning, but, uh, you know, I think as you got more experience it was uh, reasonable for you to just kind of put the patient or the lesion at any position, but for people starting out early, do you still recommend that people have the lesion kind of sitting at six o'clock in, uh, and put the patient in positioning uh, for that? Or do you think it doesn't really matter?
2: I, I would say it depends on how you learn to do these and how you train. Like, you know, if you're a fellow and you are in a program in which they're teaching you, you could do this at any position and you learn to do it that way, why wouldn't you do it that way when you get into your practice? So, I, I think it all depends on you know, um, not, not what you learn and how do you learn to do this. Now, if you are already uh, in practice in a place and you want to do this just because you say, well, it's kind of like nice and sexy, I would not recommend it. Uh, this requires volume, like everything else. Uh, you know, it's like we, uh, there's always been this discussion about rectal cancer, and I don't think local lesions are different than that. Uh, they need to go a place where there is volume, where there is expertise. And going back to my original story about how I started this journey, I was lucky enough to be in a place in which volume was almost a guarantee. It was just a matter of concentrating that volume and prevent the leak of those patients. But, you know, do, doing this, I think definitely requires volume and, and consistency.
1: So you have a patient in position, um... How do you actually set up your Tavis platform? Are you putting in a Lone Star? What are some tricks so you can actually get things effaced enough that you can get the whole platform in, it doesn't move, and, and you kind of have the maximum reach? Yeah, so the TAMIS
2: platform, as I said, is 4.5 centimeters in length. So it has sometimes challenges for you to put it. If you're doing this for a, a female patient that had a very short anal canal, it's pretty easy to put. And what I do before I put the long start is I always, always put like the stitches at the four corners to try to efface the anal canal. So I put a stitch with a tool silk with a big needle, taking the anal verge, then anal margin, and then perineal skin, kind of like to accordion the skin. That, in most cases, is enough for you to bend your platform and introduce it into the anal canal then if you were to, because you, you could imagine how this will be on an obese male with very big chicks, it will be very challenging to put that. So I put those stitches. And if I still see or I know in advance, I know in advance because I know the body habits of the patient, then I will put the lone and start retracting. Uh, otherwise, you'll be struggling. It will be pretty much impossible to set up that platform in there.
1: You've talked to me before a little bit about how you actually um introduce the uh the tamis platform itself um in terms of bending it or like uh, remind me again about how you actually would put the gel phone in how
2: yeah so uh, you you know you take the circumference and you bend it you create kind of like a notch and without without killing you grasp that so you decrease the lumen of that then you insert and you got to make sure the rim the upper rim is above the the elevators it gets stick there and that's how you know for sure sometimes you put it in there and it has to have a perfect circle and when it doesn't sometimes it's when you use that obturator that's the time when i use that obturator if you're going to try to put this platform straight with this obturator you're going to pretty much like hurt this patient rip tissues damage the Yeah
1: and for our, on our youtube video i'll i'll put a picture of the the platform so people kind of know what we're talking about with respect to the operator, trader etc I, so. I,
2: I i can also send you maybe a couple of pictures of those stitches that i'm talking about at, at, at the quadrants and see how it makes sense to face the anan canal with those because it opens up the anan canal
1: absolutely and uh, is there anything special about so so for people who haven't seen this this is uh you know there's there's, there's sort of uh, a gel foam port on one side of this Tamus platform and you actually put the instruments into this gel gel foam port it's kind of like uh, people have also seen the hand assist ports it's a similar kind of setup where uh, you get where you can actually put the instruments and the ports right through that gel foam kind of uh, uh, membrane is there anything special in terms of the way that you actually put those ports uh, in, or is it just a standard kind of triangular formation?
2: Well, I, I I have my standard, which is, you know, to try to put the three ports as far from one another. I put um, in, in two at the top and one at the bottom. Uh, I put my left hand at the bottom, my right hand on the uh, uh, upper corner, and then the camera comes on the left top port, uh, the insufflation device that I use is the air seal uh, or uh, some, something that is valveless that prevents the quivering of uh, the rectum. Or you could have now with this platform, there is a reservoir that creates that. So every person I think will create its own its own method. For me to say, owner, you always have to do it this way, I think it will be wrong. Uh, it's just whatever really works for you. For me, what works is, uh, i still have this triangular configuration
1: you mentioned that for in terms of your instruments you tend not to use an energy device like the harmonic or the like a shirt um is, what's the reason for that and what, what kind of instruments do you typically use
2: yeah i don't use any energy device because i don't think you you need it at all it's, it's not necessary as i say you know the first time i did this uh, three hours and I use an energy device. You could use it just with regular monopolar calorie. And when you see a vessel, so sometimes you didn't encounter like vessels that are enlarged, uh, you could use a hot Maryland uh, to do that. And, and uh, so the first thing is to demarcate your lesion. Before you do anything, you see where it is and you demarcate it, you know, you put little burning pl- uh, uh, spots to make sure you go that. If you don't do that, you, you you're gonna get lost it doesn't matter how small the lesion is you definitely are gonna get lost
1: right and then when you go about resecting these what's your approach you typically so after you know marking out your your uh, margins you typically go uh, sort of proximal on the lesion and kind of work your way back you start distally try to raise it go and work on the sides and then come underneath it or does it really depend? How? What's your sort of typical approach for most lesions?
2: So uh, it's pretty much a combination of everything you said. You got to be frugal. Uh, I would like to, if I can, come from proximal to distal, uh, but it's not always possible. Some lesions are too mm, bulky, or they're behind a fold, or something like that. That's what I think is very important to demarcate the lesion in advance. So you do what. Um, you know what? What what is feasible? What is possible? Um, there are even situations in which I will say use a hybrid approach. If the lesion is very very distal, you kind of like have to start open, like it's a conventional transanal. You start, you know, opening your plane very distal. You lift that, that part of the lesion of the of the wall, and after you introduce your platform, you continue that way. So it's 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 almost like Whatever works. Sometimes you start proximal, sometimes you start distal, sometimes you start open.
1: Right. Um, and and you're what? What are you aiming for in terms of thickness? I think you alluded to this before. Um, do, you, do you always try to go full thickness for these, uh, or do you ever go submucosal? Do you ever inject um, submucosally to try to raise that? You know, that's a great question. I I, I do
2: not typically will raise, and I will try to go full thickness um you, 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 you kind of like have an idea uh, that this is not uh malignant that this is just a polyp but many times you don't know so full thickness of the muscularis uh could you do kind of like an esd just go sure you can uh but my preference is to go full thickness
1: right so uh and then, then the perennial question about the defect. So once you have this lesion out, you, you've removed it. Um, what do you do with the defect? Are you closing these defects? Um, are you selectively closing them? Talk to me a little bit about that. So
2: your uh, uh, teacher and, and 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 your teachers in Vancouver, and you probably were part of that publication. Uh, Carl Brown and their group—they they clearly demonstrated to us that there is really no difference. In my experience, the difference is the ones that you don't close have a a little bit of a um, greater tendency to to bleed. Uh, I try to close all of them. And the reason is they heal faster, but also um, it's good practice for those lesions that are into the peritoneal cavity. Because when you see that into the peritoneal cavity, so you get the chills, but you need to be prepared to close that defect no matter what. So having this experience when you don't have instruments that are angulated, you don't have an angle, you are pretty much working in a parallel fashion. So you need to be able to close this. Time is very complex. So I use some sort of a barb barb uh, suture that prevents you from having to tie. In the past, I used to play play some... Uh, clips, uh, laparotomy, made of vital. uh but tying is, is very challenging. If the lesion is very distal or is something that, you know, closing it will narrow the lumen, then those defects I will leave open when they're too extensive to do. And I always, uh, I would recommend that, you know, always close it in a um, horizontal fashion, never, you uh, know, in a vertical fashion because that will narrow uh, the lumen. and that definitely
1: is something you don't want to happen. So let's talk about for a brief second about that uh, scary situation when you clearly can say, oh boy, I'm in the anti- the perineal cavity, um, and uh, your 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 sphincter is tight. Uh, looking at the small bowel flopping into view. Are there any tips and tricks for trying to close that type of defect? Um, uh, when you when you're clearly into the perineal cavity, and you know that you have to have that closed. So first,
2: this in most instances, shouldn't come as a surprise. You should know in advance that you're likely to get into a pertinent cavity based on location, and that's why those patients you most likely will have in a prone position knowing that this will happen. Then, depending on the extent, you know, you will say, I will uh, divide this. So I typically try to start to the most difficult uh, uh, corner. I try to define which one is most difficult to, to get on and see if I can put it there. If I cannot put it, because if I can start with the most difficult corner, let's say at the uh, right upper, then I can put traction and then bring it into view. If I start into the easiest corner, sometimes seeing that one when the defect is closed in my experience is more challenging. Uh, or sometimes what I've learned in the past is also try to find the middle of the defect and I start there, and put my first stitch there, close it, and divide it, and then do the left side and the right side of that defect is it, it, is viable. Sometimes the defect is 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 not as massive, but it's always going to be larger than you think. You know, you have this lesion and you say, "Oh, it's two centimeters," and then when you see it, the defect is always always a lot larger.
1: That's fantastic. Um, uh, like on a, a side note, or a, or. A you know, I think one thing that we don't often think about is how we send those specimens. And um, for the pathologist, do you do anything special in terms of pinning out the lesion uh, just to make sure that, that those margins that you've so carefully established at the beginning of the case aren't effaced or don't kind of shrivel up when they are put in formalin. Do you pin those out or, or mark those out? What do you do with the specimen? I
2: always pin it down on a piece of cork uh, and different methods depending on where you are. Uh, before I used to use that little foam uh, where you know where the nurses discard um, uh, needles, and I suture it uh, to that. Uh, here, there in Kingston, I was always using the pins on the piece of cork. But you want to do that, otherwise uh, your margins, when it is informal,ly go- are going to shrink, and your pathologist is going to have a very hard time defining defining the, the margins.
1: So, Dr. Casido, when you have uh, this uh, lesion back from the pathologist, and they say that was that was a wonderful job, Antonio, uh, the margins are all negative. But in fact, there is a focus of an invasive cancer in this um, in this specimen. How do you approach that mal- classic mal- malignant polyp in the in the rectum? What are the things that, that are the factors that you're looking at that would make you think, hmm, maybe this patient needs something more uh, in terms of sure. radical surgery? Sure.
2: Well, if it is a T1 lesion, you know you're more likely. Uh, uh, t- are, are are happy and, and convinced that, you know, you you did sufficient treatment for the patient. Uh, as I said before, uh, I always tell patients, you know, mm-hmm. this is the ultimate biopsy. Uh, if it is more than a T1 lesion or a T2 or like any concerning features, uh, I bring up the patient and say, you know, we got to do more uh, for you. Um, there are occasions in which, you know, you go knowing that this is a more advanced lesion, a T2, even a T3 lesion, but the patient is not a candidate for anything else. So you wanna do some sort of local debunking. Uh, um, but you know anything that is more than a T1 lesion, you wanna offer something more radical. Initial studies suggested that a T1 lesion will have a risk of about 10% of having positive lymph nodes. We know now more that that, that, that risk is significantly less than that. Uh, but I always talk to patients. You know, they are people that are you know, 40 years old. You find that the poly was actually a malignancy, and it all depends on the level of comfort they have. You know, there is a small chance that you might have positive disease, and the patient might tell you, you know, I cannot bear the thought. Of having a single cancer cell in my body, let's go for something radical. And you tell them it's very possible that nothing else will be found, but if that is your thought, as long as you understand the functional changes you're going to have, then sure you go for that. Uh, if it is a 70 year old guy or person that has this very early lesion, you most likely encounter patients that are very comfortable and say, I don't want to give them a second thought, leave me alone. Uh, they don't want to go for anything else.
1: What are the highest features that you look for on the pathology report that you care about for, for T1 cancers? Are there any highest features that you care about?
2: Yeah, you know, I would say pretty, pretty much um, uh, uh, microvascular invasion you will know, be EMVI is, is one of those uh, things that I think are critical. Poor differentiation is, is a bad thing. You could also argue, depending on what your pathology is going to tell you, on how deep this is into the um, submucosa. Uh, I, I, and, you know, we could get a little bit more complex into defining the depth of the submucosa as one, one, two, and three, combined with uh, those different uh, aggressive features of poor differentiation, EMVI, vascular invasion. In which you could say, you know, the biology of the lesion is more aggressive, so probably having something a little bit more radical will be uh, necessary. Now, you you can recall the CO28 that I, came from Vancouver and a bunch of hospitals. We participated in that, uh, and and it was a very promising study. You know, having from T1 to T3 N0 lesions that received preoperative chemotherapy. I and mean, if they have an adequate response to go for a local excision, that was all uh, with the goal of organ preservation. Uh, that's a whole different thing because uh, it was a little bit more experimental, but you know, many of those patients possibly could have had these features uh, there. So there's a lot of things that we need to learn more about uh, the biology because uh, what, what we do is purely mechanical.
1: Yeah, so that was uh, the new trial that, uh... Carl Brown, Hagen-Kennecke, uh, uh, I think it's now published in, in, from ASCO. How do you follow these patients uh, that you've just done a local excision on? How often are you doing endoscopy? Are you doing any kind of imaging to follow these patients?
2: So let's say we have a, a, a T1 lesion uh, that was excised and we are happy and the patient is happy to go that route. I will bring it initially to do flex scopes every, every three months. I will do imaging preferentially. I think I would like to do an MRI just to see if there's any new lymph nodes and taking this very with a, with a grain of salt the information that you're going to get from there, right? Like, like, you know, if you do it very early, you're going to find uh, inflammatory changes that could be confusing. So I will do a scopes every three months. I probably will repeat the uh, imaging at about six months to a year. And, uh, I typically will not do CA levels or things like that for T1, which are not really recommending. It will be more like an endoscopic and radiologic follow-up. If this is something more advanced, then I will do a more aggressive type of follow-up.
1: That's fantastic. Um, I'm actually going to, if it's okay with you, bring up some of your videos that you posted on Twitter. Here's a video that you talk about where you talk about your approach, about uh, how you score, you use regular monopolar cautery you do a full thickness division so you talk us through uh, what, what you're doing in this in this particular clip
2: yeah so if you see the lesion has been completely demarcated uh, uh, distally approximately and now i'm just defining getting into that that bright yellow fat is the mystery rectum. i want to be as close as i want to the wall and the reason is i don't want to violate the mystery spectrum. so here we're going from uh the distal aspect now we're taking more stores the lateral aspect of this lesion um i'm not sure if this was a t1 or it was just a, a, a polyp possibly it was a, a a malignant polyp um, very careful with the traction that i create to that because i don't want fragmentation so i grab it very firm but in a very delicate uh, fashion So now I'm going there into the fat. possibly here there was a vessel, I think at the bottom then you can see it, that you can easily control in most cases with the uh, Maryland. Now you can see the defect is much larger than you thought. I always watch it, I review hemostasis. Um, These patients almost always I send home uh, the same day. I keep the patients that got into the peritoneal cavity. And if you see, I started at a corner there. This is finished, two sutures were done, different was closed uh, completely. Uh, review hemostasis. The other thing that I would say is, what I've seen is if these patients take any type of NSAIDs after, those are the ones that bleed. Uh, I don't have any hard data to support that to say but I tell the patients not to take any Advil, like ibuprofen, uh, you know, for about two weeks or so.
1: And you're making this look pretty easy, but this is very hard because you really don't have, you know, triangulation at all when you're doing these. Where, where is your assistant usually standing? They're usually, kind of standing to your left side, because uh, you put the camera in the left upper quadrant. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So,
2: you know, there, there, there are, as I said before, you have no, no angulation of your instruments; They are parallel to you. Typically, the person will be on the left side. Um, if you have something like a, a flexible camera, that makes it very easy. But in most places, it's a rigid camera. So I would say having a 30-degree lens will be very useful, and the person holding the camera will be to my left.
1: The, here's, I think, the the full video of you closing this this defect. You're using a barbed suture. I think that's I think that one is a V-lock. Uh, yeah. Correct. Yeah.
2: And the thing is, you know, you can put your stitches any way they come. You can put it from inside, outside of the defect. It doesn't really matter. So, make, make, yeah, here's me closing that, that 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 defect, going in any direction. You just want to make sure that this is be closed in a um, continuous uh, fashion. So that is stitch one there that you saw, the stitch went through and through uh, the two right there.
1: Yeah, well, that, that's where it's nice, where it's easy that you, you can just take it in one kind of thing rather yeah. than having to try to. And,
2: and it. if you take a look at the left hand, the left hand is pulling the suture and that is used to present the tissue to myself. Rather than grabbing the tissue, I'm pulling on the suture.
1: And you use uh You actually use two sutures there because it uh, it just. What was the thinking behind that in terms of using two sutures as opposed to just running that one uh, all the way over to the right or all the way over to the left rather?
2: And one suture will not be sufficient. So I started at one corner. When I got to the middle, I said, "Well, this is not going to be enough." So let's start at the other corner and try coming to the center. The alternative would have been to start in the center divide it in two and then go with one suture to one side, going to the other suture to the other side. The challenge though is that um, eh, eh, the corners are the most difficult parts to see. So it's, it's better to, to try to start at the corners rather than 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 living to the end.
1: It's it's always amazing to me that these patients don't really have more issues with stricture or narrowing, but I think it's very rare, especially when you close it transversely like that, for for patients to really have any issues with uh, with with stricturing or narrowing. I don't know if you've had any problems with that or issues with that.
2: I, I, I don't think that I've had any strictures with narrowing so far. Uh, with that being said, I've had cases in which I started doing it and I realized this is going to be narrow. So I stopped, I cut the suture and left the defect open. Uh, but I haven't had any patients postoperatively believe, that had a, a stricture and then they run into problems.
1: Well, this has been an absolutely fantastic discussion with you today, Dr. Kisino. Really, Thank really you. appreciate your, your time and and I'll just mention for the listeners that you're actually in Colombia right now, uh, helping people, uh, you know, other surgeons out learning le- learning TH&E and other techniques. So you just keep you just keep rolling and keep grinding and pushing. So uh, that's just amazing and inspiring for all of us who are, uh, you know, early on in our career. So so thank you again. Thank and, you. Um, if you could go back in time, knowing what you know now, um, what advice would you give yourself as an early attending, or perhaps as a chief resident? Any piece of advice that you give yourself? Sure.
2: I'll I'll tell you one thing that um, Eric Poulan, who was the chief chief surgery in Ottawa, uh, he was a master laparoscopic surgeon. He's no longer uh, this client, but he said to me once, uh, we we were doing surgery, I think I was a third year resident in Ottawa, and he said, uh, just uh, have this in mind. No one, no one is indispensable. No one is absolutely necessary. But just make sure that you become almost indispensable, whatever you want. So um, I I think that's the greatest piece of advice that I have ever received. Uh, I always mention that because that is a way just to say, you always stay hungry because of that thing. You you do things that are going to differentiate what you do from what other people do, not just to say that you got to be uh, exclusive or anything, but just try to always push uh, the envelope to see what else you could, you, you, you could do. Uh, just keep your motivation out, I would say.
1: You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at Surge. Thanks again.